Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. And we are in Daniel chapter 7, of course. Title of today's message is Daniel's Vision of the Coming Kingdom. And so if your Bible's not already open there, let's uh, turn there now. We're having a great time this summer reminding ourselves of the sovereignty of God over kings and empires and indeed all of the events of human history. And up until this point in the book, Daniel has been the interpreter of dreams that others were given. You remember the two kings of king, uh, two dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. The first one was of a great statue. Remember this statue had a gold head, silver arms and shoulders, bronze midsection and legs of iron and feet were a mixture of clay and iron. And then later on, he had a vision of a great tree and he heard an angel say to chop down the tree. And of course, this vision had to do with Nebuchadnezzar himself who had grown large in his own pride and God had to cut him down and humble him. And then after Nebuchadnezzar passed away and Belshazzar ascended the throne of Babylon, Belshazzar had a vision of sorts, not in his sleep, but during one of his drunken parties, God wrote on the wall a message for Belshazzar and he could not decipher the message and Daniel was summoned even though he had been laid aside and forgotten for many decades. And of course the message was that uh, Belshazzar you've been weighed in the balance and found lacking and your kingdom is going to be taken from you. It's going to be divided. But now we find Daniel beginning in chapter 7 is receiving visions directly. Now be aware that the book of Daniel is divided almost equally into two halves. The first six chapters are historical narrative. This happened and that happened. Of course, it began with Daniel and his three, th uh, three friends being taken captive down into Babylon and uh, how they grew up together and how they stood upon their convictions. Be beginning in chapter seven, it's less chronological and more eschatological. Remember eschatology is the study of last things. And there are some people that think we shouldn't study eschatology in the church, um, but the Bible has two great books of eschatology, the book of Daniel, and of course, the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, this summer I had the joy of recording 12 sessions on systematic theology, and we spent an entire hour on this topic of eschatology. Eschatology means the study of last things as it relates to the Bible. And uh, you can go back this week because we're going to be doing eschatology catalogical studies for the next six weeks and listen why it's important for us to study eschatology. The main reason is because it encourages us. It tells us that God is in control. And in a world where it seems like God has lost control, he reminds us through eschatology that he has not. And that is certainly the case as we study uh, Daniel's first vision. Let's read again the first seven verses here in Daniel 7. And in the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now you'll note he's kind of gone backwards and circled back historically. Uh, if we were going chronologically, Belshazzar's already been killed and Darius the Mede has ascended the throne. So he's going back before that to the reign of Belshazzar. He says, I saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed and he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. 
and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. And after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. Now here is the setting. He starts out by saying the first thing he saw was the great sea. Well, uh, in Daniel's part of the world, the great sea would be the Mediterranean Sea, but I don't think it really matters. It's just a, a large body of water that represents the world and it's churning. It's uh, frothy, I take it. And, and, and it signifies upheaval and stress. And really that is uh, the environment. If you've ever had a dream uh, and you wake up disconcerted, you might not remember the specifics of the dream. You just know it left you with an uneasy feeling. Well, that was the feeling Daniel had at the end of this dream. Everything in the dream was out of sorts. It was distorted and, and sort of uh, in a state of, of upheaval. And that really is the state of humanity, isn't it? Uh, since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, man has been in a constant state of, of upheaval. And we are in one of those periods now. Really, it's an unbroken pattern of history. Now, you have to understand that this dream that Daniel has is a parallel to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter two. That they really speak of the same things, just seemingly using different imagery. That there were uh, a statue in chapter two with different precious metals, different parts of the body of the statue. And here we have different beasts representing the th same things that the metals represented in chapter two. For example, the first beast is described as like a lion with wings like an eagle. And of course, this was the symbol of the Babylonian empire. And the scripture says the, the wings were plucked. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had his feathers plucked, didn't he? Because of his pride, God set him low and then he raised him up and gave him a human mind again. And so Nebuchadnezzar is really symbolic of all the Babylonian empire. The second beast is described as like a bear. One leg is, is longer than the other and he has three ribs in his mouth. And we know historically, just like with the statue, which was the gold of Babylon, the silver portion followed Babylon. That was the Medo-Persians. We've already seen how Medo-Persians came under the city wall and killed Belshazzar and took over the empire without a battle. They though defeated three large empires and merged them into one. That is Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And I believe those to be the three ribs. And so the Babylonian empire lasted from 605 BC to 539. And then beginning in 539, the Medo-Persians, the bear took over and it lasted till 331 BC. And then we come to the third beast. It says it's like a leopard. A leopard is known for what? It's speed. And it had four wings and, and four heads. This of course is Greece under the leadership of Alexander the Great. If you've ever studied world civilization, you know that Alexander the Great is noteworthy, not just that he conquered a larger portion of the world than had ever been conquered up until that point in history. 
It's the speed with which he did it. By the time he was 30 years old, he had conquered the known world all the way to the Indus Valley. And so he came back to Babylon where he died a tragic death in his early 30s. And when he died, the Greek empire was divided among his four top generals. And that Greek empire lasted from 331 to 168 BC. And then we come to this fourth beast, which much of the ink that has been spilled over this passage has to do with this fourth beast. It's described as dreadful and strong. It's not described in, in terms of an animal like the others. It doesn't look like a lion or a bear or a leopard. It's unique and gruesome, I take it, and monstrous, large iron teeth, and it trampled everything around him. It had 10 horns coming out of its head. Now, here in Daniel and really throughout the Bible, horns are used as imagery describing authority and power and dominion. And so those 10 horns, we take it, are 10 kingdoms that emerge from this beast. And the beast, of course, is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, was greater and lasted longer than all of the others. It was the Roman Empire that uh, held sway even during the time of Christ and several hundred years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. It indeed trampled, trampled everything underfoot around it, but it, like the others, eventually came to an end. And it was replaced by 10 smaller kingdoms, we believe to be the, the 10 barbarian tribes of Europe that uh, defeated Rome ultimately. But that really is not the most important thing. The, the identity of these four beasts, it's fun. Uh, most of you have probably seen drawings and caricatures of, of these uh, different beasts and animals. And uh, we have a pretty good idea of what they represent. They are images of the great world systems and empires. One emerges after the other. But remember, we always say here, the hero of the Bible is God, isn't it? And so beginning in verse 9, we have God on display, the ancient of days. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. <clears throat> his vesture, which means his clothing, was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. And uh, then I kept looking. Now let's, let's stop right there for just a moment. Uh, this is almighty God. He is the ancient of days. Uh, uh, the Hebrew translation, the Aramaic rather, is uh, the very ancient one. And of course, God really doesn't have age because he's eternal. But from our human perspective, which is very limited, he allows us graciously to describe him in very human terms. And from our perspective, he is the ancient one, the almighty God, the ancient of days. And the image there is of a throne, really thrones, plural, being set up and Eventually, the ancient one sits down upon the throne, and that is the place of authority and sovereignty, and he's ruling from this throne. He's a, a judge as well as a sovereign. But you'll note the difference in the setting of the throne room of God and the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world emerge from this agitated, frothy, dark body of water. It's disconcerting. But when we come into the throne room of God, there is calm and peace 
because he is absolutely in control. There's peaceful quiet. And we see several images that let us know right away this is God. We see that he is pure, which is symbolized by the fire that emerges from his throne. His hair is like wool. That is, is white, showing that he is the ancient of days. The scripture says he's attended to by myriads and myriads, which means thousands upon thousands. We believe these to be angels. And then it says the books were open. This is the books of mankind, of history. Uh, the Lord sees all, doesn't he? Scripture says that even the hair on our head is numbered. And one day the books will be opened and men and women will be judged. Does all of that sound vaguely familiar to you? Well, if you study the book of Revelation at all, it is very familiar because we have very similar imagery in the book of Revelation. Daniel and John had similar privileges is that both of them were ushered spiritually into the very throne room of God and told to write down what they saw. So let's compare Daniel and the book of Revelation. Turn, turn quickly to the end of your Bible to Revelation chapter four, and you'll find a portion of John's vision. In Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11, John too sees this image of the throne room of God. He says, after these things, we're in Revelation 4, 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on a throne. So that's what Daniel saw as well. And he was sitting he was, who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones were 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns in their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire. He saw fire as well, purity of God burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Here's this imagery again. The first creature was a lion, the second like a calf, the third the face of a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Here is God being ministered to and worshiped day and night perpetually. It's the same thing that Daniel saw in his vision. Now turn your page, you'll come to chapter seven here in Revelation and you'll see uh, even more parallels with Daniel seven. Revelation seven, nine, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so here we have not only angels ministering and giving glory to God. Here we have the redeemed saints of all time spending eternity, giving glory and honor 
to the Ancient One. Now let's come back to Daniel chapter 7. And you might have noticed that I skipped over verse 8. So verse 8 and verse 11 really are brackets between this description of the Ancient of Days. And so let's read it that way. Daniel 7, 8, as we move now to our third point, which is the boastful horn. And while I was contemplating the horns, remember this fourth beast we take to be Rome had 10 horns emerged from it, which we believe to be the 10 barbarian tribes of Europe. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one came up among them, that is the 10, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Now get the picture. You've got this terrible monster with 10 horns and then an 11th horn emerges in the middle of the 10 and uproots three of the 10. And so now you have eight horns where there were 10 and that little horn that emerges has a face like a human, like a man's face. It has eyes and a mouth. And with that mouth, look at verse 11 now. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words, which the horn was speaking. This horn was bragging about himself and what he had done. I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now we'll come back to this boastful horn in a moment, but for the time being, understand that he's describing not a kingdom, but a person, someone who has the traits of a human being, a mouth and a face. And I take it to be a king that is yet to emerge. Now, from our perspective, most of these things have already taken place, haven't they? The Babylonians came and went. They were replaced by the Medo-Persians. They came and went. The Greeks replaced the Medo-Persians. We study about them in history. They have come and gone. And then the Romans emerged and eventually they left the scene as well. But there is still one kingdom that's left to come. And we said when we studied chapter two that that kingdom is represented by the feet of the statue, which were a mixture of iron and clay, that it, it had characteristics from the Roman empire, its strength, but it had a fatal flaw is that it was disconnected and eventually uh, would fail. And that kingdom we believe is yet to come from our perspective. So, so there's one more world empire that's going to emerge before Christ sets up his eternal kingdom. And we don't know what that empire will be. We, it might have already started, might be in our lifetime. We, we, we simply don't know. Now, this boastful horn, uh, I suspect he's uh, bragging about his greatness. Remember that got Nebuchadnezzar in trouble when he looked out over Babylon and said, Oh, Babylon the great, which I have made. But here's what we know about this boastful horn. It's boast could not be backed up because the scripture says, I kept looking until the beast was slain, the body was destroyed and given to the, the burning fire. This kingdom, though it is stronger than the others, suffers the same fate as the others. It is easily put down and destroyed by the ancient of days. All of the beasts ultimately lost their power, their sovereign and authority and were replaced by the true king. Now that's the main point. When you're studying eschatology, sometimes we, we lose the, um, the macro 
the big picture for the micro. We're wanting to know what every little symbol and number means. We're trying to create dates on a calendar, but God is trying to show us something bigger. And it's okay to study the micro, but don't miss the, the macro. And that is this, God wins, doesn't he? And that is the point of all the study of eschatology. It's why it encourages our heart when we're going through difficult days, when it looks like all is lost and everything's in chaos. Don't give up, Christian. Daniel is writing to Jews who are in Babylonian captivity. Don't give up, Israel. God still has a plan for you. John is writing to Christians in a New Testament context who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Don't give up. God is going to slay this ten-horned beast. And he ultimately did. But that's not the most important part of this chapter. Most part of this chapter, it comes in verse 13. Let's look at it now, the Son of Man. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Dr. Liam Gallagher is the senior pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which has had some great pastors in its history. And he notes something here about Daniel 7. He says, the ancient of days in verse 9 is described in human terms. Did you get that? He has hair. It's white. He has clothes. He sits in a chair. And I said that God graciously allows us, though he is spirit, to describe him in very human terms. But now in verse 13, you have one who is human. That's what the son of man means. He's human, who is described in divine terms. That is, he says he comes on the clouds of heaven. Throughout the Bible, the clouds of heaven are used to describe the presence of deity, not humanity. For example, God was leading the Hebrew children for 40 years in the wilderness. He led them during the day by cloud, didn't he? He spoke to Moses through a cloud when he went up on the mountain to receive the law. Isaiah 19.1 says that God rides upon a swift cloud. Psalm 104.3 says, behold, he makes the clouds his chariot. The scripture says here that the son of man is given dominion by the ancient of days. That is, he comes to receive his kingdom from the ancient of days. Now you probably know this is speaking of the Lord Jesus, right? In the New Testament, Jesus' favorite designation of himself is this title that we find in Daniel, the son of man. We find it dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And I believe he does so very intentionally to say to the Jewish people, I am he. I'm the one that Daniel predicted who would come and take dominion forever and ever. In fact, when Jesus was on trial and he stood in front of the high priest, this is what he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, hear this, and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's why they ultimately killed him because Jesus claimed to be God and they knew it. So don't you believe the critics who said Jesus never claimed to be God? Of course he did. He did so right there in 
Matthew 26, 64, and many other places. And so Jesus, of course, is this son of man. Look how it describes his kingdom. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the kingdom of our Christ. Now we say there's a sense in which he's ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of believers today. That's the already. But this speaks of the not yet. That literal kingdom that's coming in the future where he displaces and puts down and defeats all the other empires of the world and sets up an eternal kingdom where we rule and reign with him forever and ever. Unless you think that uh, we've misinterpreted this, it's hard to misinterpret this passage because Daniel says, here's the interpretation. <laughs> Look at verse 15. And as for me, Daniel, you get the idea that Daniel's kind of amazed that he gets to be the vehicle through which this vision comes. Me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. He woke up from the dream. We've all had that experience with a feeling of being disconcerted and distressed. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. They kept coming back to his memory. So he says, I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him. He's, remember, he, he's in the um, throne room of heaven and there's attendants all around. And so he, he comes over to one, I take it to be an angel and asked him the exact meaning of all this. And so he told me, made known to me the interpretation of these things. And these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, just like with the chapter two vision of the statue. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And so the beast of the four kingdoms, we've already established who they are, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. But then it says the saints will possess the eternal kingdom. Who in the world are the saints? And so if you grew up in another faith tradition, you might have been taught that saints are super Christians, people that have verifiable miracles performed through them, uh, who, who are voted in to some sort of hall of fame. That's not what the Bible teaches about saints. Saints means holy ones, those who've been set aside and made holy through the blood of Christ. And so I take it to be the, the redeemed of all time. Just like we saw in Revelation, those who spend every day worshiping and singing praises to their God. This is us, dear friends, not only us, but the Old Testament saints who came before us, who look forward to the cross by faith, and every other Christian who has received the Lord Jesus Christ. We rule and reign with him. In fact, the scripture says, doesn't it, that we are joint heirs with Jesus. Well, that was the general interpretation that Christ is going to set up when he comes an eternal kingdom and he's going to put down all these other kingdoms. But Daniel wasn't satisfied with the general interpretation, apparently. Look at uh, verse 19. Then I desired, this is Daniel speaking, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Remember the fourth beast, unlike any of the others, ten horns emerged from his head, which was different than the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder of its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which 
Three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast of which was larger in appearance than its associates. What he really wants to know is about that horn that spoke because that was something unique. He'd seen and interpreted visions about uh, kingdoms before, but this horn that talked like a man, this was something new and it uh, mystified him. Verse 30, 21, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And so this, friends, is none other than the Antichrist. We see this, of course, in Revelation chapter 13, when John's vision of the Antichrist, and again, we have a conflagration um, of all of these four beasts put together in, in one beast, that, which is the Antichrist of, of Revelation chapter 13. Remember the Antichrist hates Christ and hates his church and battles against it. Look at verse 21. I kept looking that horn, which we believe to be the Antichrist was waging war with the saints and, and overpowering them. John, who wrote the book of Revelation says that uh, there are many Antichrist in the world. There have been throughout history. Really all the kingdoms of the world have been waging war against the things of God. But there is coming, I take it specifically, one who encapsulates all of them and all of their evils into one kingdom and, and one human being. And we call that person the, the Antichrist. The song says, kingdom, kingdoms all pass away, don't they? And that includes the kingdom of this Antichrist. Now for a time, he seems to be winning. He's overpowering the saints, the scripture says but not ultimately because ultimately when the ancient of days, verse 22 says that's enough, he passes judgment in favor of the saints. <clears throat> See, many of your lost friends and neighbors and many of the world religions teach that there are two cosmic forces in the world, right? We may call them evil and good, the yin and the yang, whatever you want to call it, but, but uh, they're battling it out. And so a lot of people view Christianity as God and Satan are battling out for supremacy in the universe and we all just kind of have to wait to see who wins. No, we don't. Because we have the book of Daniel and we have the book of Revelation that tells us God wins. And by the way, it's not a close fight. When God says that's enough of you, Antichrist, he judges him and he sets up the eternal kingdom. God ultimately defeats and judges in verse 26, but the court, see God's judging, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion, that is the antichrist will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed, how long? Forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. You see, God's people have been persecuted forever, haven't they? And we have in this room today two of our missionaries from a country. We pray for them, but they're home today because of persecution that's going on in that part of the world. And we're going to send them back out to a new place. And what I expect is they'll find persecution there. 
In fact, the Bible says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. And we have lived in this little bubble here in America all these years, and we've come to believe that we're entitled to an easy life. The Bible never says that. In fact, the Bible says the closer we come to the end, the more persecution, the hotter and more intense it will become. But ultimately, God wins. And, and so let, let's conclude like this. The big picture of all eschatology, Daniel, Revelation, is that. God is sovereign. God ultimately wins. That brings encouragement to God's people, whether you're an Israelite in Babylon or a Christian in Keller, Texas. But let me put a little finer point on this. I have noted in recent years, and specifically in recent months and weeks, much consternation and even agitation among people identifying with Christ and His church. I see it most often on the internet in their comments about what's going on politically in the world. Worry, vexation, disconcerted, upset, overwhelmed are words that I see Christians using about the present political and economic and even health situation in the world. And look, let me tell you, I am not immune from those thoughts. Don't hear me saying that, that I never get upset about what's going on in the world. What helped me a few years ago to be less upset is by discontinuing my cable television subscription. And I'm not telling you to do that from the Bible. I'm just saying we did that three years ago and we have never regretted it. Mostly. Football season, sometimes I kind of regret it. But I rarely regret it. Let us be reminded of something very very important. Every time we're overwhelmed and upset by what's going on in the news, in the end, we win. But before we do, we are bound to face some very difficult days. Very difficult days. In which Satan, who is really in control of this Antichrist, of course, the Antichrist is just doing the bidding of Satan from a human perspective. It's going to get bad before it gets better. He says he's going to wage war against the saints. I take that to be very literally, wage war against the saints. He's going to overpower them. It's going to look like the church has lost. And look, what I'm dedicated the rest of my life to doing here is getting myself ready for that. To, to disabuse myself of the notion that I can expect to live to be 100 years old in good health on easy street. What I expect is going to happen is that our lives are going to start looking a lot more like the lives of Christians in China, in Indonesia, and the Sudan. So I'm trying to get myself ready for that mentally and in every other way. I'm also trying to get my four children ready for that. Because I may die before this happens, but uh, they may still be alive. And look, from this pulpit, I hope you understand why we're studying Daniel. I'm trying to get all of you ready for these days as well. So we're going to be talking a lot more about this in days and years ahead, Lord willing. But, but I don't say that to make you fret, just the opposite. 
We don't teach Daniel so we can be upset and, and, and disconcerted. Because go back to verse 9, the image of God. He's not upset and worried. He's sitting comfortably on his throne, ruling and reigning and judging, doing what he has always does. The scripture says he sits on his throne. He does whatsoever he pleases. In fact, he's so confident that he gives Daniel a vision and tells him exactly what's going to happen. And up until this point in history, guess what? It's unfolded just like he said it would. In fact, it's unfolded so perfectly that most critics of the Bible dismiss the book of Daniel as prophecy altogether because of this reason. They say no one could be that accurate. This certainly must have been written after the fact and it pretends to be prophecy, but it's really history. Don't you believe it? It's unfolding just the way that God said it would. There's only one kingdom left that is yet to come. And so we can sit here with confidence today and say, because the other four kingdoms came and went just as God said they would, this next kingdom will come and go just as God said it will. And when it does, Jesus will rule forever and ever. It's going to happen in the future just as has happened in the past. And so the message to Christians today is rest easy. Don't lose sleep over cable news. Don't lose sleep over the direction of the government. Don't be overwhelmed by what's going on in society. Be at ease. Now that's not to say be naive. The Bible says that, that we're to walk circumspectly because there's evil all around us. We need to be aware and not naive about, but we don't need to be upset about it because ultimately we will reign with Christ forever. There's gonna be some suffering before that day comes. Paul tried to get the people of his day ready for that, specifically a young man by the name of Timothy. Do you remember? And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, this is what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, if we suffer with Christ, we will reign with Christ. And friends, that's the message of Daniel. Those who suffer with Jesus will reign with Jesus forever. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we don't claim to have perfect understanding of eschatology. But Lord, it, we know enough that it encourages our heart, reminds us in days like we're going through of turmoil and the sea of life being upset and churning in every direction, that kings and kingdoms, administrations, nations come and go. But God, the ancient of days, sits on his throne. He does so whatsoever he pleases. And he has determined in the secret counsels of God before we ever drew a breath how it's all going to end. And through Daniel and John's pens, we have it in writing. Your promise that even though we may go through some terrible suffering and persecution, ultimately you win. And because you win and we are in Christ, we win. And we look forward to that kingdom of peace where Jesus reigns eternal. But until then, Father, we have a 
a job to do, and that is to take this gospel message to the nations, that Jesus died for sinners and that whoever will call upon his name can be saved and spared from the judgment to come. So Father, I pray that the name of Jesus would ever be on our lips this week. Father, when we see things happening around us and in the news that rather than being overwhelmed and upset and beside ourselves with anxiety, Lord, we'll be reminded of your exceeding great and precious promises. And just as Jesus was able to suffer his passion and the cross because of the joy set before him, Father, that we can endure whatever comes our way because of the joy set before us and promised us in Daniel chapter 7. We thank you for this truth and we bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.